Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. In this, the 60th episode in the AA Recovery Interviews podcast series, I'm pleased to welcome Vicki A., a woman whom I first met in my favorite Zoom meeting. Like many others who've shared their stories on this show, including yours truly, marijuana was Vicki's primary addiction, along with alcoholism. The hauntings of a painful childhood in a dysfunctional family, fractured by her parents' divorce when she was young, created self-loathing and a sense of not belonging. Fortunately, she found marijuana at 13. That, plus whatever alcohol she was able to get at the time, provided Vicky with that longed-for relief and comfort that was missing in her life. She was soon getting high every day. And even when she added booze to the mix, her ability to function under the influence remained sharp, and she was able to stay employed, eventually becoming a mother of two in her mid-thirties. But her desire to get high 24-7 soon prevailed over her ability to function as a responsible parent. She finally hit the tipping point and found herself in a 12-step program for her marijuana addiction. While there, she recognized the alcoholism that was also ruining her life and made her way into Alcoholics Anonymous. There, she found a sponsor, worked the steps, went to meetings, and helped others. She was able to address both of her addictions with a solid program of recovery. For those listeners who have struggled with marijuana addiction, Vicki's story should hit some responsive chords. Especially salient are her experiences in AA during her early involvement with another 12-step program and the difficulties of trying to justify continuing to drink in the midst of quitting marijuana, and vice versa. The rest of Vicki's story is most engaging and applicable to anyone seeking help from multiple 12-step programs. So, please enjoy the next hour of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA sister, Vicki A. Hi, I'm Vicki, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Vicki. Thanks for joining me on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast today. This should be the 60th interview I've done thus far. I started last December, so I've actually done an average of more than one a week. And the purpose of this podcast is to allow people to share their stories in an interview format. Mm -hmm. So how how long have you been sober, Vicki? So I am 19 uh, plus years sober. I will be 20 on April 7th. But I've been in the rooms longer than that. And um, I actually came in before that, um, Howard. I came in uh, 22 years ago. Uh I am a marijuana addict. That is my drug of choice. That is the uh, people sometimes laugh and say, come back when you have a real problem. <laughs> Great. Yeah. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, that's what they that's what they said to my husband when he went to his first N.A. meeting. Mm-hmm. They told him to come back when he had a real problem. Mm-hmm. But um, for for him and for, for myself, um, marijuana was Oh, absolutely was taking me down mm. and um, in huge ways. I was a, a, a 24-7 wake and baker, as they call mm-hmm. it, you know, stoned 24, you know, t- stoned all the time. I was a daily smoker from the time I was 13 mm-hmm. until I was in my mid-40s. And um, there was a lot of alcohol in there. And there were a lot of other drugs as well. But that was the thing that was my deal, you know, my 24 seven deal. So you use you use marijuana alcoholically then? Uh, Exactly. I use a lot of things alcoholically. 
yes, I'm alcoholic. Yes. In fact, when I first came into the rooms of AA, I used to say, I'm alcoholically addicted. I refuse to call myself an alcoholic because I'm not an alcoholic like the rest of you losers. Right. I can handle my, but I am alcoholically addicted to many, many things. Yeah. Um, in any case, I was a wife, a mother, a daughter, a sister, a friend, a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And I did not have a big dramatic bottom in that my bills were paid. My house was neat. My kids were well cared mm -hmm. for. I had responsibilities at their preschool mm -hmm. and I raised money and I did all of these wonderful things, but I was also the mom in the sandbox, you know, at 6 PM in the dark with my sunglasses on, because nobody was going to be able to see my eyes. Mm -hmm. And I was also the one running upstairs, you know, every 20 minutes to refresh my buzz or whatever, you know, however long it would take. So you were like a super functional pot smoker and just to be be on the same sheet with you. I was also, that was my use of choice. Uh -huh. And I was, I had that period of time for many, many years where I was stoned every single day. I've been sober, it'll be 34 years on the first. So uh, that's, that's quite a ways back, but, Fabulous. Uh, you know, being a functional pot smoker, I used to think because all my friends were drinking while I was smoking pot in college. And I, I used to look down my nose at them because I said, you know, when you guys drink, you get sloppy, you get slurry. When I smoke grass, I get sharp. I want to take a drive in my car. I want to, you know, I mm -hmm. want to be creative and all that other stuff. And ultimately I ended up doing both. But what I realized was all those times I was sitting on my couch eating Oreo cookies, I wasn't doing the kind of things that people were doing to create any ambition in their lives or, or do anything of interest. Um, but it sounds to me like you had it licked if, if you were doing all of those things and staying stoned all the time. Well, I wouldn't say that I had it licked because I had uh, incredible self-loathing and shame. Yeah. Uh, I took my, my role as a mother very, very seriously. Mm -hmm. I was what was called an elder mom. I didn't have my kids until I, my son, I was 37, my daughter when I was 42. Mm -hmm. and, he was, I was actually 38 when I had him and um, I wanted kids very badly. I had lost a child due to my smoking. In any case, what actually got me to stop smoking, which was November 25th of 2000, mm -hmm. my father was coming for Thanksgiving mm -hmm. and he had come to visit us. He lived in Florida. I lived in mm -hmm. New York with my mm -hmm. family. He had come to visit us every year. So this one year, mm -hmm. my husband and I were standing on the radiator of our New York apartment at two in the morning with our heads out the window. We had rolled up a towel and put it under the door. We had sprayed Lysol. We had our heads literally, we were, we were hanging out the windows you know, of our six story, six floor apartment, getting high and all of a sudden I heard footsteps and a toilet flush. And I knew my father who was visiting us had gone to the bathroom. And could he not smell just because the towel right, was rolled under right. there? And that so I was up all night terrified. Uh -huh. And when I went out in the morning, he said, you know, I smelled something funny last <laughs> night and I did what any good addict would do. And I blamed my husband. Yeah. And um, did that work? Well, no, because then I decided the next year that I could not do that again. You know, at 45 at the time, whatever, I was not willing to hang out the window and spray the Lysol and do all of that one more time. And so literally... The day before he came the next year, I 
stopped smoking. And I didn't do it with the rooms of AA or MA or anything else. I just, through self-righteous indignation, decided I was done. Let me ask you about that. When you decided you were done, I decided I was done a number of times with pot. And what I would do is I would say I'm, I'm through smoking pot, but I wouldn't throw out or flush whatever dope I had. I would leave it in the drawer where I intentionally wanted to forget it was. But just in case I decided I ever want to start again, I wouldn't have to go and find it. When you stopped, did you have that feeling of finality or did you think that maybe somewhere down the road you'd be able to start again? I quit so many times over the course of years. I, I, I quit successfully for big periods of time when I got pregnant. Uh -huh. I, would, I would stop smoking in preparation of that. I wouldn't smoke through a pregnancy. I didn't smoke through nursing my children. But the second that I gave up nursing, literally the same day, I was off to the races and smoking 24-7 again. So I had quit for two years at a time, you know, twice and for a year. And I'd quit many times, but this particular time in my mid forties mm -hmm. with my father on his way, a mother with two kids that I adored who were getting old enough to kind of like, where's mommy going, yeah. you know, kind mm -hmm. of thing. Um, I had just had it. I, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I just, I had been uh, badgering, my husband to get sober you know when i when i was pregnant he got sober with me each time and uh but he would go out was his alcohol or, or marijuana too he he was both he was most he was mostly marijuana but he also had out an alcohol mm -hmm. issue much more than i did um uh but i had as big a pot issue as he did if not more but he would he would quit with me but then I would find his stash and I would flush every, I flushed every, I flushed more <laughs> pot down, down the toilet. Oh my God. If I had that money now, but yeah, he would, he would go in and out and um, he, but he was in the rooms. He was in the rooms. He was going to meetings uh -huh. each time uh -huh. and he couldn't find his place because in NA, they told him to come back when he had a real problem in AA. He just didn't, you know, there were people in there doing the marijuana maintenance yeah. program. There were people in AA who gave themselves permission to smoke. And so he didn't really find his people. Hmm. And then what happened is um, when I gave up pot on uh, November 25th, 2000, mm -hmm. I did it without rooms. He was going in and out of mm -hmm. the rooms. Um, our therapist suggested uh, marijuana anonymous and he started to go to those meetings and there he found his people. And I didn't need that because I was not smoking. Yeah, I get it. And yeah. so I would just sit outside the rooms and I would hear them laugh. And I was like, what the, I don't know if I can curse. So I won't, I, I didn't know what the hell they were laughing at. What the hell are you? There was nothing funny, nothing <laughs> funny about being sober at all. And I hadn't laughed in a long time and they would laugh in there and he'd come out and he'd be in a great mood. And it's like, what the hell is going on in there? And finally, after eight months of sitting outside every Friday night, when he went into mm -hmm. the meeting, because we would go on date night after that, um, I asked him if I could go in. And as I was about to go into the room, the, the secretary of the meeting, the leader of the meeting, as they call them in New York, um, 
asked me how much time mm-hmm. I had. And I said, time, what does that mean? He said, you know, how long has it been since you smoked? I said, nine months. He said, would you be our speaker <laughs> today? Okay. And I said, uh, okay, I don't know what that means. And he, he, he asked me to share for, I don't know what it was, maybe mm-hmm. 10 minutes and uh, to share my experience, strength and hope. And I was like, my hope, I have no hope. <laughs> so you, you quit, when you quit, you were, you were hopeless. You were feeling hopeless when you quit. Absolutely hopeless. The laughter from the pot had ceased at some period prior to then. Absolutely. So you and your husband had a grand old time. Not once I got, not once I stopped smoking, we didn't. Once I stopped smoking, nothing was funny anymore. I mean, literally. Yeah. Why would you want to stop with that going on? Because I was a parent and that was the most important thing. And it wasn't even only being a parent. I had so much self-loathing for years, not being able to look people in the eye, you know, and I, I was successful in my field Mm -hmm. prior to becoming a parent. And my bosses used to always, you know, say, you're so much nicer when you don't smoke. And, you know, um, you know, pot, I had lost a job uh, getting caught smoking pot at work. And I had a lot of self-loathing before becoming a mom. But once I was a mom, all bets were, it was, it was a completely different story. Then it wasn't just about me. Then it was, a, then I had a greater responsibility. Yeah, I get that. And you've said a few times now about the self-loathing. Now that doesn't come out of thin air, but you started smoking pot at 13, you said? At, yes, correct. So what was going on in the house and when you were growing up, your family of origin, that had you start to use marijuana or was it more of an experimental thing? Was it what were the what was going on in your family of origin? Um, I grew up in New York uh, in the late fifties and sixties, and my parents divorced, unheard yeah. of. Um, when I was nine, you know, in the in the mid sixties, mm-hmm. just people weren't divorced, and my brother and my father lived across the street. This happened eventually. It took about two years of shifting around and moving around. So my mother and I landed across the street from my father and my brother. My brother insisted on living with my father. He was three years older than me. And he just had a lot of uh, hatred towards my mother for divorcing my father. So he refused to talk to her, to be with her. And I really resented the fact that he got to go be with my father, who was the loving, affectionate. He was um, a singer in the Catskill Mountains. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was just this, this guy. And um, he, my brother got to live with him and I got to live with our mean mother. Across the street from each other? I mean, that's kind of unusual, isn't it? Very unusual. But what happened was it was it, things were going south when they first split up. My mother and I we lived like a mile away. Then she moved me like into a whole different world. She moved me to Long Island and my father and brother lived in the Bronx. So we were, my father would come and pick me up on Fridays and drop me off on Sundays. And it was the worst, absolute worst time of my life. It was that Sunday feeling that Jethro Tull talked about, you know, that horrible feeling. And, um, I was missing school and I was a good student. I was in danger of getting left back in fifth grade because I was so sick all the time from missing my father. So then she decided to move across the street from my father and my brother. What did your relationship with your brother turn out to be because of all that going on? Did you have any kind of relationship with him? Not good. We didn't have a good relationship when we lived together. He was one of those older brothers that used to bully 
So he was, you know, writing in my doll's ears and, you know, giving me noogies and just being kind of mean to me. He wasn't, he wasn't a very, uh, loving older brother. So we had trouble before, before my parents split up. Once they split up, um, we actually had some good years when when he was the first person that I saw LSD on the Lucy in the sky with diamonds Uh poster. He explained to me what that was. And he was already getting high. The first time I got high, it was with his friends. So through that period, when we were both getting high, beginning to get high, we had a slightly better relationship. But in any case, I was a latchkey kid. I would come home alone at 9, 10, 11 years old. No, it was starting when I was about 11. And um, my mother was working and didn't come home until it was dark for most of the year after five, you know, six or whatever. So I was moved around a lot. Um, Before my parents split up, we Uh moved a couple times. And then once they split up, she and I moved like three times really fast. So I never could, uh, you know, my friend, my friends were, you know, making friends was torturous. I was a really shy kid, which is really hard to believe for people who know me now, but I was a painfully shy kid. And I was always the new kid in school. And I had, she whacked my bangs off and I looked like a freak Mm. and, and I would go into these new schools, and by the time I'd make friends, we'd be moving mm. again. Did she turn? Did she try and turn you against your father in any ways, or did she resent the fact that you were going to visit him on weekends or anything like that? Well, she resented the fact that I loved him so much. I think, and that we got along so well, and I how I would cry when I came mm. home. And she, uh, we, I had a very different relationship with her. We lived in a two room, two and a half room, little basement apartment. And she had the living room and I had the bedroom and we were rarely in the same hmm. room. Hmm. And, um, oh, that sounds tough. it was, yeah, I used to have to, you know, make my own dinner and all this many nights. And, you know, I was too young to be doing that kind of stuff. I was just telling somebody that she got me a, a little puppy at one uh-huh. point to keep me company. And uh, I named the dog Ringo. It was the (laughs) mid sixties. And, and uh, I had that dog for two weeks and I I was 11. I had no idea how to train a dog and the dog would go, you know, poop on newspaper in the kitchen. She said, if you don't teach that dog to go outside, I'm going to take it away. And literally within two weeks, I came home from school one day and the dog was gone. And so, you know, it was kind of, you know, there was all kinds of stuff going yeah. on. Did she have a reason to do the things she did? Yes. Was her life difficult? Yeah. Yes. Do I understand better now? Yes. But at the time I was lonely and, um, and did not feel that I fit anywhere. I felt like a total freak. Yeah. All, everyone I knew had two parents lived with their siblings. I was the only one who didn't. Mm. And so the first time I got high was the first time in as long as I could remember in Mm -hmm. years that I breathed deeply and relaxed and felt a part of. And also what it also did for me was I, it gave me courage Mm -hmm. and it gave me all of a sudden the personality that I had inside that I never let out would blossom and bloom. Yeah, I, I get that. That was that was how it was for me, too. Uh, I had a really, really traumatic childhood. And whenever it was, I found grass. And I didn't start smoking grass until I was uh, about 17. And I my very first time smoking was with my older sister. 
but boy, you know, to, to just be able to have somewhere to escape, even if it's within my own mind, was a godsend at that time. And I never knew that that kind of relief existed because I spent my whole childhood in constant fear and in an agitation. I've interviewed a lot of people whose parents got divorced when they were five or six or eight or nine years old. And my parents never got divorced, but I spent my early years wishing every day that they would. That's how bad it was. And so whenever it was I found drugs and alcohol, man, what a relief. What a relief it was. I could be myself and have a personality that wasn't shaped by the way my folks wanted me to be. Hmm. For me, it wasn't so much about what they wanted me to be as I started to discover who I was. Um, it gave me courage in school to be social. Um, it gave me friends after school because I had this girl, Roseanne, and we would go and we would get high after mm -hmm. school together all the time. She could steal pot from her brother. I was taking money out of my mother's wallet. So being stoned all the time, you had a homeostasis all along. You had an alternative normal if you were stoned all the time, didn't you? Well, at that age, at 13, I wasn't high at school. I, I wasn't doing that yet. Okay. Um, I was high every day, but I wasn't high at school. I would wait till I came home. I was yeah. also smoking cigarettes at that time. And, uh, I'm trying to think when we started drinking, I'd had my first drunk by 13, mm -hmm. champagne, walked fully clothed into a swimming pool, <laughs> threw up the rest of the night. Um, Good times. So, yeah. So I'd already, you know, the Boone's farm wasn't far behind and, and all of that. But for me, it was about giving myself permission to be who I really was and who I had been repressing. Um, Did that come out immediately? Is that something you had to kind of tease out over the years? You know, it it came out fairly quickly. I was a, I was very different when I was high. Mm -hmm. I did give myself permission. I wouldn't say it happened at 13, but yeah, by 14 and 15. I mean, I still had shy and I still do have a shy aspect of myself. And now it's really hard to find. It's much, much smaller, uh -huh. but that's always existed for me. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I found freedom in being loaded. And again, it was permission. It wasn't really that things were different. It was that I just gave myself permission. It wasn't about my folks giving me permission. It was about me giving me permission. It was it was self it was self inflicted repression. Yeah. So you you took care of it yourself. I get that. In addition to having to deal with that, we have to deal with the fear of getting caught and the consequences of all those sorts of things. Um, I didn't have that too much because I was a latchkey kid. So you could do what you wanted. Yeah. So and my mother never questioned me when I was sixteen. I got on an airplane and went and visited my boyfriend for two weeks. She thought I was visiting my father's girlfriend. She never even picked up the phone to call, to check. You know, my kids, you yeah. know, they're in their 20s. They don't get to do that stuff. <laughs> but, you know, it was different times. And, you know, I did some crazy, she just didn't monitor me. Perhaps she didn't know what she didn't want to know, too, you know. I don't know if it was that she didn't want to know. I, I was a good girl. And, I, you know, I... I was perceived as a good girl. I was very responsible. My yeah. homework was always done. You know, I did fine in school. I wasn't a brilliant student. I was good at the subjects I was good at, and I did okay at the rest. And um, So your life wasn't going south like a lot of people's do early on. 
It was not. It was not. I mean, I, I had my I definitely had my moments, but for the most part, I was fair. I was highly functional mm. even then. Yeah. Yeah. And being highly functional with alcohol or drugs is a, is a blessing and a curse. Mm-hmm. I was that way too. I got through school. I got through whatever relationships. I got through doing what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. But it also made me feel like I didn't have a problem whenever it was that it was starting to affect me negatively. I thought it was everything else and not that. When did you first notice pot being an impediment to your life? Ooh, I didn't for a long time. Mm. I'm trying to, the first time I got in trouble with it, my boyfriend and I were driving cross country. I went to school in Arizona Mm -hmm. and we were driving from New York to Arizona and we got pulled over and terrorized by uh, some cops Mm. who ended up um, taking the pot. They said, well, if you give us what you've got, we'll let you go. But if you try to hide it and we find it, you're going to jail. Um, And we were terrified. We didn't know if that was a trap or whatever. And we ended up giving them the pot and they took it and they did let us go. And then they just wanted the pot. (laughs) Okay. I guess. But that was the first time that I was terrified because of my smoking. I'm sure there were many times when I almost got caught when I did get caught prior to that. But then there there was a lot of stuff that happened after that, that, as I said, I lost a job. I was getting stoned. I was a a waitress in New York at a very, very high end restaurant. Uh And I was like the only female there was all men. It was a very, very popular place with a lot of celebrities. And I'd been there for a long time. And uh, we would go downstairs to the electrical room and get stuff. We, we, everybody drank that you were allowed to do that. Yeah. So I would decant wine and have these brandies that were like $300 a shot and for me. And that was all okay. You know, the drinking on the floor was all okay. Yeah. But go downstairs to the electrical room and smoke pot. No, that I got fired for. Isn't that amazing? When you, when you think back, I mean, of course, nowadays, it seems like a million years ago with all the states that pot has become legal in including the state you're in. Uh, not in Texas yet, but that's okay with me. So you got fired from the job. That was a consequence. So that was one consequence. The biggest consequence I had as a pot smoker was I was 35. Um, I was in my second marriage. I wanted to have a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I stopped smoking. And I got pregnant right away. And we were going down to Jamaica on a ship. And I hadn't smoked in the month before getting pregnant. And now I was two months pregnant. I hadn't smoked in three months. That was the longest I had gone ever in my life without smoking pot. Mm -hmm. And we got down to Jamaica and we got a driver for the day and he started driving us around and he offered us some ganja. And I said, no, you know, I can't. And my husband was like, come on, just one, you know, one little hit. What's one little hit? And of course I'm going to blame him again. Mm. And, uh, and I did do a hit. And I hadn't gotten stoned in so long that I got so high. And then I took another hit. And another, so I had about three hits. And we had this incredible day in Jamaica. And then just before we were going back to the ship, I had a few more hits. And it was the highest I'd ever been in my life. I'd never smoked anything like that in my life. And um, before we getting on the ship in Jamaica, they throw you in jail. They throw away the keys. Oh, yeah. So we didn't have anything. We didn't have eye stuff. We didn't have any gum. We didn't have, so we bought these lemonades and I literally poured it over my head, (laughs) drank it, poured it all over myself. So I would smell of lemonade and not ganja. Oh God. 
<laughs> and we got on the ship and that night I had this horrendous headache, like the worst headache of my life. And it lasted for a few days. And we got back to the States and I went to my gynecologist and he went to feel the heartbeat. And he said, oh, you know, the baby's probably sleeping. It's too early. Can't hear it. Don't worry. Everything is fine. He didn't have an ultrasound in his office back in those days. Hmm. Anyway, another six weeks went by. And I continued to grow and I had morning sickness and all everything seemed to be more. And then I started to bleed and I started to miscarry. And I went in to have an ultrasound the next day. And it turned out that the fetus had died. She pinpointed the day and it was the day I was smoking pot in Jamaica. Did I kill my unborn fetus? Did I do that with pot? Was it something that would have happened anyway? All I know is that it was the most heartbreaking, th the most horrific thing I felt responsible for doing in my life, obviously. And I came home and I got higher than I hadn't been high in like four and a half months. I got higher than I'd ever been. I stayed stoned out of my mind until we were able to finally try again many months later because I had housed this dead fetus for like six weeks. Yeah. I had this horrible infection and I could we couldn't try again for many months. And anyway, it was that did that stop me from smoking pot? Did that get me sober? No, it did not. I just smoked more. How horrible. I was in a horrific state of grief and um, self-loathing and shame and guilt. Instead of being able to escape from it, you were like nailed to it. Absolutely. Torturing myself. I was torturing myself with it. How long did it take for you to stop the self-torture? Well, what happened is after I was on antibiotics for about six or eight months, I think it was, and then we were able to start trying again. And before we started to try, I got sober again. And it took a while for me to get pregnant. It took some months, and but then I did get pregnant. And I did not take any risks with my next pregnancy. And um, there was no smoking. There was no drinking. There was no nothing. And in fact, I nursed my son for over 12 months because I was afraid that when I stopped, I would smoke again. And sure enough, literally the day I stopped nursing him at 14 months, I took my first hit and then I was off to the races again. Did he come out okay? Everything was, he was a perfect, healthy baby. Perfect. My, my son was just here for Christmas. He's 27. He's perfect. So the cumulative effects of all that pot smoking that you had done for so many years, you know, obviously the miscarriage was a horrible thing to have happen, but even given all of that he comes out healthy healthy as can be yeah so what did you make of that the first time versus the second you know i felt like i was rewarded for my good behavior that because i was you know not getting high not drinking doing every not taking drugs everything was on the straight and narrow i felt like i yeah. was rewarded with a healthy baby it was easy to be sober for him and to stay yeah. sober, you know, when I was nursing, it was just, as I said, once I, the second I stopped, I was off to the races again until the day I decided that I wanted to have another baby. And then I sobered up again to get pregnant with my daughter and did the same thing. How many years later was that? Uh, she's four years younger than he is. And so three years later, the process started and, um, 
I again stayed sober all through my pregnancy and while, but I didn't nurse her for 14 months because that was too long to wait. Uh So I nursed my daughter for nine months. And then the day I stopped nursing, I was off to the races again. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. I wanted to ask you, during the time when, when you lost the baby and all that grief, and then, of course, having your son, who I'm sure you had a lot of concern until he was born healthy, where was God all this time? Where was God hanging in your life, or if at all? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Howard. You know, my father came from a very, very religious uh, background. He was a Hebrew mm-hmm. teacher. His brothers were Hebrew teachers. He taught in yeshiva. My grandmother was a Rebetzin. But I was not raised that way. You know, when I was little, we were kosher when my parents were together. But once my parents separated, my mother raised me pretty much without religion. You know, we celebrated the holidays. But other than the holidays, there really wasn't, uh, there was an absence. But my, I, as a very little girl, I could remember saying, prayers Uh before and they were in hebrew every night i said my prayers with my father and there was god in there um and i always believed in god but for me it was let's make a deal with god so god existed for me when oh god if you do this i promise i'll never do that again oh god if you give me this i promise i'll never do that again so it was always let's make a deal it wasn't that i had this this awareness of a higher power that was protecting me um i felt like i had to make deals with god to take care of me Mm. I married an atheist the second time, and um, there was an absence of God in his life and a cynicism. But by that time, I don't know at what point it happened that I really became spiritually in belief. But it happened at some point before I got sober. Hmm. Before I got sober, you know, I was kind of a socialist and existentialist, you know, as a, as a teenager. And I was very politically active in this, very mm-hmm. politically active in the late 60s and early 70s. And I would say I found God somewhere, somewhere in my 20s. I kind of got some sort of spirituality and awareness of God and believe. What was your relationship like with God until you showed up at AA and saw the steps? So for me, there, I, didn't, I, I sponsor a number of women that have great difficulty with higher power. I did not have that difficulty from day one. As soon as I started reading the steps, as soon as I came into the rooms and we said the serenity prayer, Mm-hmm. That serenity prayer saved me so early in my sobriety in such a profound way that my belief was locked in in that moment. In what ways did it save you? 
very early in my sobriety, and actually it wasn't my sobriety, it was only my abstinence from marijuana, but I I was still mm-hmm. drinking alcohol at the time, which I did for 18 months after I gave up pot because I wasn't an alcoholic like the rest of the losers. <laughs> and so I, I don't have to do that. And as I said, I didn't find my way into the rooms until I was nine months free of pot. And that first time I qualified that I was telling you, they asked me to speak. I didn't realize that I wasn't really sober because I was still drinking. They didn't tell me, do you, they didn't ask me if I was drinking. They just asked me if, you know, how long I hadn't smoked pot. Yeah, that's a conundrum built into the differences between the two programs. Yeah, I didn't know I was doing anything wrong. So anyway, I shared at that meeting and he had asked me to share for 10 minutes and I shared for probably two or three, probably the shortest share I've ever done. And everybody clapped and I was like, oh my God, this is wonderful. And then everybody said, oh, I really related to your short but strong share. And I was like, wow, this is this is so validating. And people were laughing and I was like, this is fantastic. And so I started coming back every Friday night uh, to MA. Sounds like an ego thing. Oh, it was totally ego. But then I really fell in love with it because there was laughter there and there was acceptance and there was, Mm -hmm. and there was relating and there was, uh, everybody was telling my story and, you know, I just loved it. And so I did that for, um, I had, it was nine months of post pot that I quit quitting that I came in. And then nine months later after that, so 18 months after stopping pot, I realized that I wanted to work the steps. I wanted to do it like everybody else did it. I wanted to have, you know, a real sponsor. I had a temporary sponsor who was kind of starting me on the steps. Um, It was my husband's sponsor and he was kind of doing it with me, but um, I wanted to do, I wanted to not be terminally unique. Yeah, I'm curious about that, Vicki. You're talking about when you came in and you came from one program to the other. While you were in the MA program and you were still Mm -hmm. drinking, Mm -hmm. then you came into the AA program. How did you reconcile the drinking that you had done when so many people, when they talk about their sobriety date, they talk about a date that includes both alcohol and marijuana? Well, that is the only date that I celebrate uh, officially. I celebrate my sobriety as April 7th, 2002. But I note November 25th, 2000, because that was an important day for me. But I only note it as quitting pot. That's not my sober date. But what happened for me that's very interesting is that I started doing service immediately in Marijuana Anonymous as soon as I uh, gave everything up and got sober. And I was going to AA meetings um, Mm -hmm. pretty early on. I was still I was still drinking, but I was going to a um, meeting in New York and I was going to uh, a regular AA meeting with my husband. He brought me there. And so what I would do is I wouldn't drink for 24 hours before going to that meeting so that I could share. And that was really what got me to quit drinking finally is because I I really love that group and I really respected that group and I wanted to be a part of and I couldn't say that I was an out, hi, I'm Vicky, I'm an alcoholic. I would say, hi, I'm Vicky, I'm alcoholically addicted. Because um, I could call myself a marijuana addict, but I wouldn't call myself an alcoholic. Yeah, that covers, that covers a lot of ground, doesn't it? Well, it did till I realized that I was an alcoholic. But in any case, what happened is that I 
got them to change the rules in Marijuana Anonymous in New York so that at the Friday night meeting, you could take chips from marijuana abstinence because I was strong. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of opinions and I was very persuasive. And they changed the rules at that meeting in New York, which to this day, you can still take a chip for just being off pot. And as soon as we changed that rule, I quit drinking because that's the kind of person I am. So I got sober within weeks of that rule changing. And um, anyway, I did a lot of service in MA, both at Mm -hmm. the district, at the meeting level, at the district level, then at the world level for years. I was the literature trustee and stuff. So while all this is going on, you're still participating in AA. And I'm going to AA. Now I'm sober. I get a bona fide sponsor. I start working the steps in earnest. I've now started to do a lot of service, world service. Did you acknowledge yourself as a, as a true alcoholic? It took me a, a few years until I would actually say, hi, I'm Vicky and I'm an alcoholic. What were you thinking during that time? It took me to work the steps and I ha- wasn't finished with them. In New York, it's like you do one step a year. It's very <laughs> slow variety. Mine wasn't quite that slow, but I got stuck on four for a long time. Mm-hmm. I was on four for quite a long time. But in that meeting in New York, I got the basis for almost all of my recovery in that room. I learned so much from those people. It's mm-hmm. a tiny little room in the little room, but I got so much out of it. And I learned about the third step there. Mm-hmm. from a young hip hop guy who I did not understand the third step. I did not understand the concept of turning it over. What the hell does that mean? How do I turn it over? What does that mean? And he said to him, what it meant is taking the next right action, that that was how he gave it to God. He just would one step at it, one action at yeah. a time, take the next right action. And for him, that was letting go and letting God. And that made sense to me. One action at a time that I could wrap my head around. That was in an AA meeting. That was in an AA meeting. So the serenity prayer, what happened for me there was very early in my coming to the rooms. I was still drinking. I was maybe um, in Marijuana Anonymous Uh for a month or two, and my mother and I started going to mother-daughter counseling, Mm -hmm. and we had had a horrible fight, and I was on my way to go to the therapy session, and I had, you know what? No, I was completely sober at this point. I had already started going to AA. I had the big book with me, and it didn't have any... It was one of those little, the new edition. Uh-huh. And anyway, I had the, the big book with me. I think this is true. I'm not, now I'm not sure of the timing. Anyway, I had it with me and I was reading, but I just started saying the serenity prayer and I was saying it mm-hmm. over and over and over again. I was a nervous wreck to go to this session and I got to the session and the therapist said, who would like to start? And I let my mother start. And she talked almost the whole meeting and I listened. And at the end of the session, the therapist said, who are you? And what have you done with Vicky? Because she'd never seen me ever listen, not get mad, not act out, be, you know, be able to just sit there and take it in. And it was so profoundly shocking that I was able to do that, that, um, that serenity prayer became the greatest tool in my arsenal and probably to this day still is in its way. Sounds like a real touchstone for you. 
Absolutely. It was a spiritual awakening. Absolutely. So that's a beautiful uh, connection between a prayer that we say more than probably any other and your personal behavior Mm -hmm. and your personality. I mean, it's beautiful to hear how a person gets changed by that prayer. When you were doing Marijuana Anonymous, I'm trying to get the time frames right here. You were in MA or Marijuana Anonymous for how long before you stopped drinking and came into AA? Okay, so I was I was not smoking for nine months before I came to MA. For nine months, self-righteous indignation. I would take all my husband's pot and flush it down the toilet. I look for it, flush it. You can't stop smoking pot, but I can. And it was all self-righteous indignation. Nine months. I come into MA, I love it. And I'm going to one meeting a week, Friday night meeting. Then I add Wednesday and I'm going to Wednesday. Then I'm adding another meeting. I'm doing about three meetings a week. Then I start going to AA almost immediately to that one AA meeting. So what I was trying to get to, and you've answered it really nicely, is I kept thinking, well, if you were working the steps in MA... Mm -mm, I wasn't. You weren't. Okay. Mm -mm. So it wasn't until you got into AA and there was something... What was there about the AA program that made you want to work it there instead of in MA? I worked the steps in MA, actually. I worked I worked the steps okay. with an MA sponsor, uh-huh. uh, with two MA sponsors, because I left my first sponsor, went to another one. But um, I did them uh, in Life with Hope, which is the Marijuana mm-hmm. Anonymous big book. But AA was what motivated me to do it. Well, they both motivated me to do it, but AA more so. You know, MA was is, is a very young fellowship, mm-hmm. and it was very young back then. So there were only, there weren't right. a lot of elders. There were some people, there were people who had more time than me. There were people at that time who had eight years, nine years, which seemed unbelievable. But um, there weren't people with 20 years, 30 years, 40 years in MA. Takes AA people coming into those meetings to really get them going, doesn't it? Well, we didn't have a lot of AA people coming in. But I was going to AA, so I was having that influence there. And I was being, I was around people who had 20 years sober, 30 years sober in AA. They had what I wanted in terms of wisdom, in terms of serenity, um, in terms of seeing their own part in things, you know, all of that I was so in awe of. So even though I was working the steps in MA, I was very impacted by AA, but MA, you know, I was hugely involved. You know, I was now going to probably four or five meetings a week. And as I said, I was doing service at every level, including world service. And it became my whole life. Yeah, I get that. And I think dual or even triple affiliations with different anonymous programs is perfectly reasonable. From a holistic standpoint, it's I think it's it's brilliant. I've got a number of men I sponsor who are in GA and DA and some of the other A's, SLAA, which has you know, mm-hmm. kind of gotten more popular over the years. Mm-hmm. But you've already mentioned a couple of the, what I would perceive are some really terrific gifts that you've had, albeit not necessarily in sobriety. It was in the period that you weren't smoking. But in looking over the last nearly 20 years, what have been some of the events in your life that have been impactful for you? I mean, good and bad. And how did you get through them in the program? You know, it's interesting, Howard, because I can tell you something that happened back then to something that happened today, which is where 
my gratitude for being a sober woman, it, it makes me emotional. It, it, I'm, my eyes are tearing thinking about how yeah. grateful I am to be a sober woman and how having the steps and the program and the meetings and a higher power and a sponsor and sponsees and how all of this stuff contributes to my daily practice. And it is a practice mm-hmm. and I have to practice yeah. every day because yeah. I forget and I make mistakes. And, um, but one of the greatest things that happened in semi early mm-hmm. recovery was I started writing a book and I was not a writer. You know, English was my best subject in school, but it wasn't the thing. But I, mm-hmm. from the events that happened uh, with 9-11, just post 9-11, mm-hmm. I started writing mm-hmm. and my husband suggested that I continue. And after about 20 pages, I thought, oh my God, this might be a book. (laughs) Who am I to write? Where do I come? But I worked on that all through Mm -hmm. um, early sobriety. And uh, I have a day count for writing every day, which I started in New York, just as I counted my sober days. And I started that in September of 2004. And last night, I counted my days at 7,567 days of writing every day. Until that started, how long had you been sober until you started the day count? Just I, I, not long, 2002, so less than two years. It was a year and a half after I started uh, yeah. counting days as a sober woman. I started my day count in, in this. It's really extraordinary the, the way those two seem to be inextricably connected for you totally connected and what also happened that was pretty fascinating is that um it took a long time and many years and many lives but i published that book and i would never have started let alone finished let alone published Hmm. had i not been a sober woman and i also worried you know i was Mm -hmm. comic back in the day when i was using and i um i was an actress and i worried like hell that i would not be able to be funny be creative do any of those things and the great all of the greatest accomplishments of my life with the exception of having my children Mm. have come in sobriety and I'm much funnier now, not being a comedian, just um, being real than I ever was then when I was trying. Does it seem kind of weird to you at times to knowing what a comedian is in sobriety to talk about being a comedian when you weren't in sobriety? Do those seem like miles and miles apart? Well, you know, I've never been a comic in the traditional sense uh-huh. as a sober woman. I don't consider myself a comedian, but as I said, I'm so much funnier now than I ever was when I was trying to be. And it's all because it's all real now. Being sober, I am far more creative. Everything I was, I'm better. Being a mother, being a person, being everything is better as a sober woman. Every, every, every single thing. Yeah. And we see it over and over again in the people that we're around, people that we sponsor. You sponsor a lot of women? I sponsor um, four women and one transgender male. How does that enrich your sobriety? Amazingly, I worked, I'm working on the sixth step with a sponsee of mine. I have one sponsee mm-hmm. in Marijuana Anonymous, and she's the one who works mm-hmm. the steps most diligently. I was the literature trustee of Marijuana Anonymous, got approved a step workbook for MA, and spent the next year and a half 
writing that book with a small committee of people. Hmm. And we work out of that book, uh, doing her steps, which is an amazing thing. But um, we're doing the sixth step and it's all about dropping the rock. Right. And uh, so we're reading drop the rock right now. And um, I get everything I need every time I work with her or with any sponsee. I hear exactly what I need to hear that day. If we're working step one, it's because I need step one that day. If we're working step six, yeah. it's because I need that. Gives you an idea of how well you've worked the steps. Or how well I'm not working the steps. <laughs> well, or how well you're not working the steps. Whenever you're working with somebody to re-experience it and mm-hmm. just find words coming out of your mouth that you didn't realize you had internalized about the different aspects of every step. So... I still go to a step study every every week. I go to a few. Mm-hmm. You know, I never I never ever get tired of that. And of course, the fellowship is is absolutely mm-hmm. amazing. I was just wanting to make sure that that other side of the story, the what's happened in the last twenty years, what what serious challenges have you faced that you got through? Uh, I know for me, being sober and having to have three different back operations, having some horrendous things happen in. Uh, in relationships and business, uh, had it not been for AA, I don't know that I could have, frankly, survived some of them. Did, have you had experiences like that since you've been sober? I had hip replacement surgery three and a half weeks ago. <laughs> Holy cow. Yes, I did. So uh, yes, in answer to your question, and earlier I said there was something Today. that happened today where I got to use my program, there's rarely a day that I don't actually. But today it becomes a lifesaver because I'm battling with my boyfriend and Mm -hmm. who is many years sober, many more years than I am. And yet we can both easily forget that we are sober recovering humans and fight, not fight, but argue in very childish and um, ego driven ways. And um, we got into sort of a battle of the wills yesterday. Yeah. And what I knew to do was to read my daily readers when I got up today. Uh, I didn't do, I have not uh, gotten on my knees and prayed Uh the way I am used to doing uh, every morning since I had my surgery, because getting down on my knees is still a little weird, but I can do it now. There's really not an excuse, but I did a little prayer and then I I call, I called to, um, our sister, my, I have a, I have a God squad. I have a sponsor, but I also have a few spiritual advisors, one specifically in the other program in Al-Anon. This was an Al-Anon issue that I was having. Mm -hmm. And so I called my spiritual advisor. I, I made at least five outreach calls last night did not reach my sponsor, my spiritual advisor. Um, I did finally reach a fellow in MA that I've, that I wrote that step workbook with many, many years ago, mm-hmm. but I really didn't get what I needed to move forward. And I reached my spiritual advisor today. We did a very long call to work through how to take next steps to heal Mm -hmm. this damage that had been done. I put a call out to my outside help, to my therapist, made an appointment for this evening so that (laughs) I want every opinion possible. You know, I want God, I want my fellows, I want my sponsor, I want my therapist, I want everybody weighing in and I want to make sure that I do. And then I did the writing and I have to do the writing. And I was able to because I'm 19 years sober, I get 19 
seconds of pause. That's what I was taught. You uh -huh. get a second of pause for every year you're sober. Well, I made it, I made it 19 hours of pause and I kept my mouth shut for about 19 hours until I was ready to speak as a sober woman. I did not want to, that doesn't mean I didn't say anything in the heat of it yesterday, but today I wasn't going to make it worse. Yeah. So you didn't pull out the 10th step right away on that one. You waited until you knew exactly what you wanted to do and say. And actually I have not made the 10th. I'm not ready. I have not been ready to make a 10th step yet, which, which my spiritual advisor told me I'm going to have to do. And I said, no, I'm not apologizing right now. <laughs> but what I did do was I did uh, I did look take my own inventory. Yeah, what was your part? I did look at my yeah. part, and my part was ego, and my part was historic woundings, and my part was my lack of trust dealing with my mother. You know, I mm -hmm. looked at all the stuff that was mine, and I owned it, but I also said, you know, we created this. Um, my sponsor told me years ago that we partner with people. We're two rough rocks when we partner with another human being and we are brought together to smooth out each other's rough edges. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to think about it too. It really is. So this is a situation that, that you have been in. You've, you've got your ways of dealing with it, talking to spiritual people, being guided into what to do next. Okay. I've done this. I've done one through seven so far. So I admitted I was powerless over the situation. I admitted there's a power greater than myself that's going to restore me to sanity. I did turn my will and my life over to the care of my higher power and my spiritual advisor. Uh -huh. I did take my inventory. I shared it with my spiritual advisor. I then found my part. I then admitted it and I shared it with the person to whom I had the issue, but I have not yet made the amends. I haven't done the full trip yet. I still have work to do today. You know, what occurred to me is, wouldn't it be great after all the years we spend in AA, I'm still waiting for my automatic response to be different than it almost always is in times of tribulation, trouble, uh, fear, or anger. Because it's like when you go inside, for the right answer, it's usually the one that, that's, that was programmed at a time that I wasn't sober or at a much earlier age. I, I would love to be able to have that. I know it's accessible, but it's almost like I got to think about it to make it accessible. I wish sometimes that it was just automatic. So going into the situation, automatically, I wouldn't react the way I end up having to make amends for later. Does that make sense? It does. And I think that that happens... I think my initial response to things is emotional and reactive, but I think except in my primary mm -hmm. relationship outside in the world, I think I bring my program with me more often, not always, you know, I'll still lose my patience with someone, you know, in a store who's not doing their job, or if I'm on the phone and I'm not being helped the way I want to, I still will not act like a recovered woman at the beginning, but I catch myself quicker. I am there. I can amend very quickly um, and catch myself. It's much, much harder. I say to work my program in my pajamas, you know, at home with the people closest to me, with my kids, with my boyfriend, with my mother, it's more challenging, way more challenging. Yeah. All the work, all the work that you got to do. Well, you know, what's brilliant about this story that happened to you just in the last few days is it ties together a program 
that I think has been very well worked. It sounds to me like you've been sufficiently engaged in not only your AA program, but these other uh, anonymous programs, such that they've had a transformative effect on your life. Would that be a fair statement? Absolutely. I mean, MA was a huge part of my life. I basically stopped going to MA about eight years yeah. ago and put all my focus into AA and Al-Anon. I've been in Al-Anon for 16 years. That's had a huge effect on, that's had an mm -hmm. enormous impact on my relationships, obviously, because as my sponsor says, I probably won't want to drink today, but I might want to kill somebody. So I have to work that program yeah. really diligently every day. The AA, I had to get sober. I had to be able to stay sober. Yeah. You know, I go to so many meetings and I'm so entrenched that it's very unlikely. I hope, I mm -hmm. think people that go out after many years, usually it's when they start to drift away from the program. If, you know, they're not really working with sponsees anymore, they're not working with us. Usually, I mean, some people go out just like that, but. Priority loses priority because of other things. Yeah. So I, I think, mm -hmm. I think people that stay close to the program tend to stay sober. I, I don't, I don't feel in danger so much of going out as much as I do about losing my emotional sobriety. Mm -hmm. I went to a meeting the other night. The first one I've ever been to was an AA meeting with the focus of emotional sobriety. And I thought, this is fantastic. I love this. Yeah. I've been to some meetings like that. They're terrific. When you can lay it out there, usually is a leader who does it. If the leader opens their heart, much more likely that the rest of the group is going to open their heart. And and I love those emotional sobriety meetings. They're always great. I believe that too. You've been terrific today. And you've, you've just, I mean, it's a, it's a version, another version of a sober woman who is a terrific demonstration of how sobriety can enrich another person's, can enrich your life. I was noticing the God can. Can Thank you tell you, me Howard. about that? It looks like it's filled up to the top, isn't yeah. it? Oh, God. And this is about my 10th one at least. Yes. What I do is yeah. I take a big Costco coffee can and I cover it with paper and write God can oh. because I can't, but God can. <laughs> and there's a space in the top God to box. put stuff. I used to have a God box. That's but cool. but I like the God can because of that. I can't, but God can. And I find that I forget to put stuff in there for myself. I, I tend to put notes for other people who are struggling with health issues, emotional, you know, relationship issues, whatever. And I have to put a note in there for me today um, for God to help. I, I have to ask for God's. I think I actually did put one in there today, but I need it's I believe that the act of just saying help. Thank you. Is the simplest prayer. The it's as effective as any. It's always available, and when I'm humble enough to remember to do it, it always works. That's cool. God can. I like that. Did you come up with that yourself? The God can, or somebody else? No, I wish I could take credit for it. No, no. Well, this is this has really been a great opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. I've only done this a handful of times where I've interviewed somebody who I really know very little, mm -hmm. if anything, about short of the few minutes that they've shared in a meeting. But this has Thank just been you, delightful. Howard. You're a, you're, huh. you're a remarkable woman, and I'm hoping that we can stay connected. As I tell all my guests, I love you, and I care about your sobriety, the fact that you've shown 
a beautiful life made by sobriety and by AA. It's a Thank terrific you. thing. Thanks very much, Howard. Thanks for having me. Thanks for asking. It's a great honor to, to be of service. Thanks, Vicki. I'll look forward to seeing you again soon. Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Vicki A., for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please help me spread the word by sharing it with your fellow AAs? We're on our way to a million podcast followers worldwide, and I appreciate your taking the time to listen. As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more people. Of course, you can listen to all of the interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.